Hello and welcome to another Coffin Heroes podcast and 2024 we're glad to be getting back to our creator interviews. Uh, very exciting times, we've got three or four lined up over the next few weeks and uh, we're kicking things off tonight with a multi-time Eisner Award nominee who has been producing great work in comics for over a decade. Kicking things off with a creator-owned independently funded wrestling book, The Legend of Ricky Thunder, he was soon writing for one of television's biggest properties, Rick and Morty, and to date is the longest tenured writer on the comic. And just to show off a little more, he also occasionally drew the title. But for us, it was his creator-owned work that made him a writer to watch, whether it was the two-volume love letter to the hobo life in Rock Candy Mountain, the celebration of 80s TV stars and the co-stars they treated badly in The Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, or the Monsters in the Woods' excellence of I Hate This Place. You were always in for a good time with great original storytelling and an offbeat sense of humour. Recently, he's been delivering some wonderful work for DC Comics with stories in Harley Quinn, Black, White and Redder, Titans Beast World Tour Gotham, and more pertinently, Peacemaker tries hard. For me, the best unofficial sequel to any TV show ever. And soon to hit the shelves in a glorious hardcover collection, due February 6th to be exact. And you know something, it would make a great Valentine's Day present. Currently adorning the new release racks with the excellent Pine and Miramac about a small town detective agency run by a husband and wife team who just crave the quiet life. However, the past has a way of catching up to you when you least expect it. Our guest today is Kyle Starks and a big welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. That's a, that's a very nice intro. I don't. I didn't know it was a decade until just now. I don't know. If, I'm gonna have to look at my calendar and, and feel bad. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Not at all. Clearly, a decade just uh, flew by. So I mean, let's let's jump right in. You know, why comics? Oh, geez, that's a tough one. Well, you like, guys tried like, to, like to start with easy ones. You tried to you tried to warn me in advance. I you know I don't. Uh, so, uh, so origin stories I tell a lot just because that's kind of something you know. When I was little, I read comics. I have no idea why. Um, my parents have never read a comic. I don't know why they took us every week to the comic shop to get us a pull. I suspect it had something to do with my uncle, whose name is Tony Starks, not Iron Man. Um, he he did like a, a silver golden age, like side hustle, like mailing thing. And I don't know if he encouraged it or if when we were little, we looked at I don't know. Um, but certainly I learned to read off comics. Um, I love comics. I love the X-Men. And anyone who would listen to me talk about Wolverine and Nightcrawler, you know, in 1984 was getting an earful, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and when when I was a teen, I worked at that same shop that I got I got my pull from. It was also a movie rental shop. It was a used bookshop. It was a used music shop. It had pornography. It had baseball cards. So it was like this cornucopia of sort of, of stories. But I worked there. And, and after that, I was going to be a fine artist. I was going to be a, a painter. I went to art school, which I think is hilarious now because... There's no way. I, and I knew that. I knew three years in, I'm like, this is not, this is never going to work out for me. This isn't something I'm good enough at. Uh, I worked at an art gallery after I worked at um, at that bookshop. And it's just like, this is, I don't, like, I have a better chance of getting drafted in an MBA than being a professional <laughs> artist. And so I took a bunch of graphic design classes. I thought I was going to be a graphic designer. I ended up doing production art um, for a newspaper. Um, and I did that until I got married. I had kids. I was working at a factory. And I didn't think about it for, I mean, 21 to 28, seven years. I didn't think about it. Um, and when we started having kids, after the first one, I realized my time was no longer my own. I would not have free time anymore. And I made a, like a bucket list of things I wanted to do before I had my second child. And number one on that list was just finish a comic. Not make a Because I drew them when I was a teenager, but I never finished anything. Like if it was a 24-page comic, I did 20 pages, you know? Um, and I did some zine things. Like I did little zine things, but I never... I never finished a comic, and for some reason, doing a comic, like finishing a comic made sense. And so I did the aforementioned Legend of Ricky Thunder, which I think is 180 pages, which is stupid and not the way to do it. 
Um, but I posted it as a webcomic, and I did it just because I wanted to do this one thing, and I found I really loved the process of it. I never promoted it. I just got sort of discovered by a now-defunct website that was that was very popular when sort of I was coming around. So yeah, that's why comics, man. I You know, it's funny, like, I, I hadn't read comics for a long time, and it's sort of like, I want to make comics. Like, I never did it. And sort of like coming back in, all the things you miss, like I had seven years of great comics to sort of make up for. And, but the, really the process, I think all those years of reading it, it's just a media that's always drawn me to it. And I'm halfway decent at it. I, I feel like I'm, I'm okay at it. And that, that makes it better to go, oh, I think I might be pretty good at this. But I love, I mean, I just love writing and drawing a comic. It's the happiest I am. And who knew? It took me 28 years, you know, or yeah, 28 years. I mean, the question has to be at this point, you know, given it was your first comic that you finished, did you pick a subject matter dear to your heart? Are you a big wrestling fan? Yeah, I'm a big wrestling fan. And, and I knew, so the, the whole thing, which is this is a pro, pro tip for a life hack or whatever for if you want to do something, is I knew two things. One, I'd have to figure out a way to trick myself into finishing it. Like me just saying I'm going to do something wasn't good enough. So what I did, like I'm, I have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. So I posted, I did a webcomic, and I posted, I'm going to post every, I think it was Tuesday and Thursday, I can't remember, Monday and Thursday, and I knew, whether people were reading or not, that I've now made it public, that I will do something on Mondays <laughs> and Thursdays, and I would feel so guilty and awful and bad, I just, I refused. So some days, I, that, that day's post was something I drew in an hour. It was super, but I had to do it, but the thing is, like, I'm finishing it. And that's the type of thing down the road, you can go back and fix it. You know what I mean? That's something you can always fix. But at the time, I was like, I was like, if I make myself, if I, I figured out my code, right, of how to trick me to doing something. But the other thing was, before I started it, I was like, if, I, if it's not something that I want to exist, then it's, I won't like it. And if I'm not invested in this sort of, I want this thing to exist. So, you know, my first book was about wrestling. My second book is about 80s action movie, Sex Castle. That's not cool. Like, everything is, at the time, was like, and still to this day, uh, with the big two stuff, even it's me going, what's the version of this that I want to exist? And that's sort of been the code for me for everything is that and I've been very lucky. I, I very, very, very rarely took a job just to take a job um, or took a job because I needed the money. So I've always got to sort of do like, what is what is the thing that I wish existed? I was a big Rick and Morty fan. So when they offered me, I, they had me do one issue of Invader Zim, which I'd never seen. So I watched all of it and I was like, oh, I could do this. And I did it, and it was fine. But I was like, it's not great. Um, and uh, I told my wife, I was like, man, I wish they, because it's Oni. It's Oni Press. Yeah. Like, I wish they would have offered me Rick and Morty, because I love community. Um, I think Dan Harmon's really, uh, he's a challenged person, but I think he's a really talented storyteller and, and a funny guy. And I love community. And I was like, man, I wish they would have offered me this. And they did. And again, that's my same thing. What, what do I want? I wish there was more Rick and Morty, because at the time, there was two seasons, and we're waiting four years between, you know what I mean? It's like such a stretch. And so the thing was, like, not what is Kyle Starks as Rick and Morty. I don't have any interest in that. And I think in many ways, because of, of my voice, it leaned more into the things that I like about Rick and Morty. So in, in many ways, it probably is something. But I just want more episodes, right? So I'm just trying to, I'm trying to ape the show as badly. So, yeah, that's the trick for me. Is, uh, I did wrestling. I did 80s movies. Then I did 90s action movies because I love action movies. <laughs> it was like, you know, I Hate This Place came when I was as deep into my And Where Monsters Lie sort of as deep as I've ever been into being really fascinated with horror and really enjoying the horror genre. And it's always like, what's the thing? Like, what's the thing that I want to exist in the world? And I think that's just a good direction for any creative type. And just to take you back for a second there, Kyle, um, you'd mentioned that you were, are uh, a comic fan, but were a comic fan as a child. And uh, you mentioned 
uh, Nightcrawler and, and Wolverine. So oh. I guess, uh, I mean, oh, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that uh, Alan will be burning to ask you about, uh, wrestling and so forth that you've just talked about. But um, what was your, from a comic point of view, what was your gateway drug? So it, it's funny. It's, it's funny because when, when I was a kid, I had like little kid, I mean like a little tiny kid, right? My, my parents used to put the comics on top of the fridge and we wouldn't get them until we did our chores. You know, I had the most basic, basic boy. So it was Spider-Man, Hulk, Justice League, X-Men. And uh, my brother, I got all the cool stuff, you know, but it's funny because I, I, the way I am now, like, I don't, I don't like major characters. I never liked the best player on the team. And the reason why I think that is, is because at the time it was the worst period for all of those comics. <laughs> it was when Spider-Man wasn't doing anything. He was like fighting Fire Lord. Do you remember when he's like, it was just like a yeah. weird nothing yeah. era. Um, Hulk was in the Crossroads dimension where like each issue was like an adult sci-fi horror comic. <laughs> why is the little kid? It's not the Hulk you want, right? Yeah. And Justice League was Justice League Detroit, which was like, you know, in many ways considered to be the worst era for that. The only good was X-Men. I mean, the X-Men was the only good book I was reading. So I think that's why like, I sort of am drawn to sort of the minor leagues more because I think they're more interesting than those characters because I didn't probably get the best version of those characters uh, when I was consuming. They became that. I mean, eventually you got like, you know, John Byrne, Hulk run, which I think is one of the best ones ever. And, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's like a really bad era. And then, you know, we moved into the Vertigo stuff and all that. Cause we, we grew up. And, but I think when I was a teen, and, you know, when I was working at that shop, it was the 90s. And I think it was the worst period for comics. I said, I said that. Because everything was very grim, dark. Yeah. Um, but during that, and I, I got out because when I went to college, I was like, this isn't fun. I'm done enjoying it. I mean, but there was, you know, um, there was Giffen and Demetrius, Justice League, which I think is the best thing that came out. There was, Busiek was doing a lot of fun, great comics that I really liked. Why am I blanking on the team? New Warriors? Like, New Warriors was coming out yeah. then. And I uh, love New Warriors and Hitman. Um, Bone was coming out. But it was like, it was limited if you wanted, like, just pure superhero fun stuff. Um but those are kind of for my super for my superhero guys. That's kind of the you can kind of see the path. If it's like yeah. Alpha Flight, anything that was sort of a minor weird thing done well, I always really liked. Yeah, yeah, that first twelve issues of Alpha Flight. That's uh, that's a good one. Dude, I, that first that first twelve issues is so is so amazing, and it ends with such a great. It, it does one of those things that and Thunderbolts. Thunderbolts came out, which had kind of the same thing oh. in the the mid nineties, where it's like yeah. Alpha Flight and Thunderbolts both had that issue where you're like, yes. it felt. So much bit like you were you were you're blindsided it's such a dramatic turn um and that's so hard to do there's so few of those uh we were talking about that fairly recently obviously we had a big uh, a big surprise recently in robert kirkman's void rivals yeah yeah it's recent recent thing and it's you know I, I was thinking about that thunderbolts which you know you, you get that issue one it was before the internet was spoiling everything before it came yeah out. Invincible uh, would yeah, be another. Invincible would have been another one that that uh, was that was much like that. So it's nice that you can still have those moments, you know. Yeah, they're few and yeah. far between now, as you say, because the modern world, everything's spoiled, everything's previewed. Even the way previews work in comics, here's what's coming out in two months, guys. Even though you haven't read these two issues, so it can be the strangest industry. But no, I I completely agree That's with what true. you say with the sort of sort of the minor character, so to speak. Because when I get into Marvel. I didn't get into Marvel through Spider-Man and X-Men and Avengers. I got in through Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. I got in through oh, yeah. Mark Wade's um, Daredevil. I got in through Dan Slott's Silver Surfer, G. Willow Wilson's Miss Marvel. So I was reading all the fringe stuff as well before I went anywhere near the, 
the the major league, so to speak. So aside from DC, of course, because I'm a Batman guy through and through. So, but yeah, I mean, going back obviously to when you're you're going you're getting into comics. I mean, you 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 did the Legend of Ricky Thunder, which first of all I must say uh, I only discovered was a thing yesterday, and I ordered it from your store last night. So oh! I'll uh, I'll look forward to that. I'll ship it in four weeks. <laughs> oh, I'm in no rush for it. Believe me, my reading pile is always yay high. Um, it's a fast one though. It's a yeah. fast one. Yeah, I'm just yeah. I'm I'm a huge wrestling fan, Keith, not so much, but uh anything wrestling related in comics I just jump straight on to. You know, did were you did you manage to read Do a Powerbomb recently? Of course. Oh, such yeah. a good book. I'm not a wrestling fan, but such a good book. He, he's he's a lot be- he's a lot better writer than he, he should be for being able to draw so well. That since when I started there wasn't anything of note when I made that book, which is why I made it. Yeah, and since then, there's been a lot of good things of which I, I'm completely blanking on. But at the time, I think there's there just wasn't anything that was noteworthy. Um, and even Box Brown put out his uh, Andre the Giant book, I think, a year or two after I did that. Yeah, and that book is yeah. unbelievably good. Yeah, um, as far as wrestling comics go, but there's been a few. Yeah, I did that. There's been a few over the years. There was one called Over the Ropes. There was Ringside, which was quite good as well. But they're even starting to do more real, um, more true to life ones. So they did. Um, butts and seats, the Tony Schiavone story, and there's one coming out in a few oh, weeks. For the, on the Anderson as Kickstarter, well. yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Al Snow's done some stuff. There, what was the image one? The image crime one? What was that one called? Oh, That's pretty um, good. I'm blanking on that. There was Hell is a Squared Circle yeah. as well, which was a one shot. That was a one shot. Um, like then I did the Crimson um, Cage as well. Which was sort of which was uh, Macbeth, Macbeth, right? Macbeth through wrestling. Yeah. Interesting. Now, if you want your wrestling, you just have to pick up the Transformers comic. Also, Daniel Warren. Exactly. Oh, I'm sure he can't help him. Look, I do it too. I put. I try to do it less than what I used to, but there's. I mean, there used to be like a wrestling move in every action thing I did. <laughs> um, I think famously in Rock Candy Mountain, I have uh, I have Jackson do Shinsuke Nakamura's finisher. Nice. Um, which is just such. It's such a vanity thing. Um, but yeah, I just know I love wrestling. Uh, I may be, I, I may, I may be self-publishing something soon, depending on my schedule. Because there's another book I want to do that's a wrestling-based comic. Just um, because I love wrestling and and I like smashing genres together. And uh, but yeah, you I kind of like do the things you love, man. That's kind of the secret, I think, uh, to making something. Because then you're like, oh, I wanted, I wish there was that thing. Yeah. And you make it to that, right? So you go, oh, now I have it. Because I I can look back at Ricky Thunder and the art is rough. I mean, I drew it. The art's rough anyway. Um, but it's the first thing I drew. So I look back and I go, man, it's tough to kind of look at, but it reads pretty good. It's a good, you know what I mean? I like, I made the book that I wanted at the time that I wish existed. And it's still that thing. It's still that thing that I'm glad existed. Um, that's a fun one. You'll be glad when you get it. How long did the, uh, the legend of Ricky Thunder take to, to produce, to, uh, to put together? I mean, probably like a year. I, I did it. I did it two days a week. I posted it every week twice a week and i think it's 100 140 pages so you're like what like a year and a half yeah. thereabouts and then i did a kickstarter and i i don't even remember why i did the kickstarter exactly but i know at the time a lot of people the people i was discovered by a website and i became friends with a lot of people and i was on the twitter then you know what i mean like i'm on the twitter i'm building this sort of social circle with other people who are sort of loving comics or starting comics and i think the impetus was is people were like well you should do shows like you should start going to conventions and I'm like, oh, like, why? And I go, oh, you meet people and, you know, more people read your book. And I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. So, I mean, I did the Kickstarter to sort of pay for me to go to a few shows to pay for, you know, a table and a hotel. And um, and it's 
there's also I never felt I never lost money. You know what I mean? Like it was all profit because yeah, something yeah. else paid for it. So I kind of went into all those things like really sort of enthusiastic and excited. And I left enthusiastic and excited because I wasn't there worrying about how much money I'd make. Um, and I networked a lot of people. And that's why Sex Castle got made, frankly, because I started doing shows. Um, and I met Matt Fraction at a show and he put me in contact with Image, which is a part of my crazy origin story because that shouldn't have happened either. Um, but I wasn't trying. I had a, I was working at a, I had a union job. I was working at a, I, I, I was working at the best place to work in my hometown which has been around for 140 years. And like, this was just a great hobby that I love doing that made a little bit of money, which is the best kind of hobby because usually they cost money. Um, so my wife let me do whatever I wanted because it's like, oh, he's doing that thing. It makes a little bit of money. So I'll leave him alone. Um, uh, but yeah, I didn't think, it was, I mean, like, it's crazy. It, it's still crazy to me now, like, because this was never the plan. I was just doing something I like to do. Um, and I think I was pretty good at it because I was coming in with a lifetime of experience of sort of critiquing story and consuming story. Um, but yeah, here I'm like, I'm talking to you guys. Like it's crazy to me. It's still crazy to me. I just did peacemaker. I'm doing Marvel and DC. I'm doing, a, you know what I mean? It's crazy. It's insane. Like to, if, I don't think you could have convinced uh, that little kid reading Spider-Man doing something boring, something so boring. He never did anything for like five years. I don't know how that, <laughs> I don't know how that kept going. He'd be like, he'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, you make comics. He'd be like, nah, that doesn't sound like a real thing. And I'm like, I know doesn't yeah i mean it must be extremely satisfying then that the work basically spoke for itself because as you say you didn't really promote um the legend of ricky thunder with sex castle you did a kickstarter it was successful but it's not like you shipped it out to creators and said please critique my work you know it organically came to you know the the table of my fraction i mean i i'm just of the opinion that maybe he just liked uh a fan, he was a fan of any comic that had sex in the title <laughs> you know given the wonderful sex criminals coming out at the time you know what's funny is is that this would have been beautiful Mm, I say would we came out at the same time. There was three sex books for Image at the yeah, time. There Joe was sex, sex. sex Castle. Yes. Um, who's the artist on? The artist is great. Was uh, that Kowal- I work with that artist. Yeah, Kowalski, who did Where Monsters Lie. Yeah. yeah, he's really good. Uh, so it was crazy because we all sort of had sex books out at the same <laughs> time. Um, but I'd say real quick, the, the story is is that there's a show in Charlotte, North Carolina called Heroes, and there's a there's a soul food place there called Mertz, and I love Mertz. Everyone sort of loves Mertz. And if you go to Heroes, like, you kind of go to Mertz. Like, it's just how it goes. But you can't go there by yourself because it's always crowded. And so you're always trying to find the group to go with. And this would have been Sex Castle, so it would have been my third year of doing this show. I think that's right. With the Kickstarter. And um, I was, uh, the guy who was with his website, I'm like, hey, you guys going to Mertz tonight? And he's like, yeah, but and I'm like, no, no, I'm going to come with you. Won't even, like, I don't know what the butt is. It doesn't matter. You won't even know I'm there. Well, the butt was they were doing a podcast interview with Matt and Chip. Ah. Um, and they were going to do a sort of either over dinner or after dinner. And uh, so when I went over, he actually introduced me to Matt. He's like, oh, this is, you know, Kyle Starks. He made the best comic of the year, which was Sex Castle, which was self-published. And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. But at the end of this whole thing, and we ended up going to Merck because it was too crowded. We went to this bad pizza place. And they started talking about newspaper stuff because Chip worked for a newspaper. I worked for a newspaper a couple years for a long time, for like five years. Uh-huh. And so I could sort of chime in because I was like, oh, we're talking about newspapers. I know about newspapers. Otherwise, I was like, I'm just going to shut up and eat this pizza. I, I'm just happy to be eating, you know? And and Matt is what they both are. Chip is, a, I consider them both friends. I consider Chip, I think they're they're my friends in many ways because we went to these dinners that, you know, that I shouldn't have been at, by the way, that I never should have been at. Uh, dinners with Matt and Kelly Sue and John Hickman and Scotty Young. You know, I'm just like, what am I? The, uh, 
like, what am I doing here? Just sitting quietly enjoying my food. Um, but he was like, oh, I'll pick up your sh- I'll pick up your book tomorrow, which would have been Sunday. And I know for a fact, because Matt, this is a, a show for him, like for us, for me, it's like the family reunion I want to go to. He's the, He did it every year and he brought his family and he brought his, and they go around and walk around and if something looked interesting, he'd get it. And like he would, he would buy it, he would do it, which is a good thing to do if you can afford to do it. It's just like to sort of support people and look for people. Anyway, he never came. He never came. And I was like, well, I should go over there. And I, I hate to leave my table because if you leave your table, you miss a sale, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that's another reader. And that's all I wanted. And anyway, I was like, I'll walk it over there. And so I walked it over there. And this was peak sex criminal. So they have, and Kelly Sue's with them. So they have a line. I mean, literally, it goes around the building, right? And I was like, oh, I'm not going to stand in that line. Like, I refuse. <laughs> I refuse. And so I walked over and I interrupted their table, which is rude um, and not recommended. But I was like, oh, hey, Matt, you know, we met yesterday. You said something. You might want my book. I brought it for you. And he's like, oh, yeah, how much is it? And I'm like, oh, like nothing. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And, and in a moment that is famous in my house, because my wife loves to, my life, my wife loves to read much. is that Matt Fraction pointed at me and he said, pros get paid. And he bought my book with real money and I gave him my book. His plane didn't take off on time and he happened to read my book and he sort of live tweeted it. How much he liked it? I think I sold like six books, which was like 120 bucks. You know, I was pretty stoked. Uh, I was like, thanks, Matt. Like another $120. Like that's solid. But then he emailed me and he's like, do you want to talk to Image? And sort of everything after that has been, you know, this sort of chaotic career. Not chaotic, but you know what I mean? Like unexpected. Just like one unexpected thing after another. And Image was like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to do Sex Castle. I want people to read Sex Castle. Not thinking, I guess I could have said anything. I, didn't, I only thought they meant the one thing, you know? So, yeah, that's how it started. And then that factory shut down. The factory shut down unceremoniously, and I didn't have a job. And my wife said, do you think you can make comics for a living? And I was like, mm, I could do four Kickstarters if I had to. I think I could do four Kickstarters a year, which, by the way, is a crazy amount of work. I yep. don't recommend. Um, and she went to go work at a hospital. I've taken over the conversation. I'm sorry. But she went to go work at a hospital. Yeah, she went to go work at a hospital cleaning bathrooms which is, I'm going to tell you, is one of the three worst jobs you can have on earth is cleaning bathrooms at a hospital. Um, and that February, I did Kill Them All, which I did the Kickstarter for. I finished it. I did 90 pages in 30 days, something like that, something insane. Because I, I need the money. I went, I mean, I had like a, uh, I can't, it's been so long. They gave me money for firing me. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, <laughs> and then I was like, but we need the money. And uh, so we did the Kickstarter. My wife, but that February, I got offered Rick and Morty, which was a monthly job. It just led, which sold really well. Um, Sex Castle was nominated for an Eisner. It was optioned before it came out. Like crazy things happen. It, it sort of, it seems like every moment since then is another crazy moment that there's no way you could prepare for. You know, all you can do is sort of make the work and hope, you know, it engages people and that they want to engage you. That's my origin story. That's the, the short version of my origin story, guys. How to get into comics. And in that origin story, does Chip Zdarsky end up your arch nemesis? No, I, dude, I love Chip so much. You know, you know, when I started doing Marvel Unleashed, um, I do. I did a free comic book day a few years later in Muncie, Indiana, with Chip Zdarsky, and it was kind of just me and him, and it was great because I, I had met him at Heroes. Like we had, in, we had, like we were acquaintances. Like we knew who each other was. Um, he was at those dinners too, where I sat quietly. Um, but we spent like a whole day together, and it's like I think I don't want to speak for Chip, but I, we, I, you know, I call, I talk to Chip. When I see him at shows, I talk to Chip. We're friends. Um, but when I was doing Marvel Unleashed, sort of adjusting to Big Two, for me, as someone who's always had sort of autonomy, like everything is mine, and I decide what everything does. 
Um, and then dealing with six editors instead of one editor, it was it was very stressful. And I called Chip. I mean, who else? Could, like Chip went from being me to being Chip. Um, he went from being a silly little guy who was the number one guy in comic. He survived going through Marvel and DC of being a silly little guy to being what he was. So I called him for advice. He gave me some of the best advice I've had in my career. Yeah, no, I love, dude, I, Chip's the best. I, I saw Chip at New York Comic Con, not this year, the last one I went to, and he's like, I'm not doing these anymore. Because um, he didn't need to, and also because he was getting hassled every time he flew into the country. And uh, the thing is, like, I was like, but for me, I'm like, man, that's really sad for me. Yeah. Because I won't see, I won't see my, like, this is kind of the, the show's are kind of the only place you see people. So it's like, you look forward to the shows. Whenever I get asked to do a show, I'm always like, who's there? Who am I going to see that I know, that I get to talk to, that I like? As much as you like, you know, selling things and making money and talking to fans, it's like, which one of my, which one of my peers that I never get to see am I going to get to see again? So Chip's high on my list. I love Chip. Love him. Not my nemesis. Yeah, he was kind enough to be one of our first interviews and a great one it was too. He's great. Yeah, it was quite a fun story with Chip, how we got him on to it because he was doing some fundraising for the Hero Initiative during um, lockdown, mm -hmm. obviously raising money for comic creators. So you paid like $60 to have like a sit-in interview with him. And there were six of us there, you know, from all over the world. It was myself and then like someone from America, someone from Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. And every single person in the conversation bar me was basically just saying, can you introduce me to someone at Marvel? Can you introduce me to someone what? at Image? And I was the one going, so Chip, when you, you did Sex Criminals, you know, what were your influence? You know, I was the one talking yeah. to him about his work. So I sort of slipped him a message going, you know, we do our, our own podcast. Would you fancy coming on? He said, you're the only one asking me questions. Absolutely. And it yeah. all led to a friend of ours did a, uh, I think it was for our three-year anniversary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He put together a little video of testimonials of people saying what the store meant to them. And then it gets to the end of it and it fades to black. And it opens up and there's a close-up of a belly button. And then the camera scans up and there's Chip standing there in his dressing gown. And I, I remember it so well. He's sort of like, so, you know, happy three years, guys. You know, the world's gone to shit. And, you know, <laughs> but yay, three years. <laughs> he's, he's such a funny bloke, so he is. Yeah, he's um, hilarious. We love him. A lot of time for him, a lot of time. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you're, you're you're doing really well with all your creator and work at that point. You're getting lots of notice and then you jump on to Rick and Morty, mm -hmm. as you say. I mean, how was that jump as a creator going from I have full autonomy over all of my work to playing in someone else's sandbox? Did you get a lot of freedom with that? Yeah, you know, again, I'm so lucky. And obviously there's doing good work and good work helps you be more lucky. But um even now, I'm bad at collaboration. I, I, it's on the list of things I strive to be better at. But with Rick and Morty, they just didn't care. It's a multiverse. This is a part. Everything happens at some point in the multiverse. So they really didn't care and kind of let me do what I wanted. Um, Rick and Morty, also a crazy story. I was only supposed to do five issues. Um, they wanted to do sort of five-issue rotations with cartoonists coming in. And basically, they would write five issues. They'd draw the fifth issue. And then they'd move on. And that way, there's a fresh voice sort of coming in. Um, you know, every trade basically. Um, but I did those, I did those first five issues. And like I said, all I did was try to make more of the thing I liked. I remember when I was a kid, I, I read Star Wars, the Marvel Star Wars comic. And at one point, like Jack the Rabbit showed up and I was like, oh, this isn't the thing I liked. And it totally took me out of not only Star Wars, but comic adaptations. Cause it's like, it's not the thing. What's the point? Like, and I say that I love Evan Dorkin's Bill and Ted, which is not really the thing, but it's still a great version of the thing. So I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. But for me, if you love, X. I can't. I'm, I don't want to name any property, but it's like I love the Goonies. Like I love Goonies, right? And you're like, oh, you want to read the Goonies comic? 
I don't want to read a comic that is just the Goonies movie I saw. I also don't want to read something that's not that thing. That doesn't feel like that thing. It doesn't seem like that thing. So that was what I strove for. Um, I did those five issues. They said, do you, do you think they asked, the Rick and Morty people asked, do you think he wants to do five more? I was like, I'd love to do five more because it's helping pay my rent. You know what I mean? <laughs> or pay my mortgage with my kids. I now have two kids. Um, and after, while I was doing those five issues, they were basically like, let, they said, let him do it until he doesn't want to do it anymore. Like that's, wow. that's unbelievable. I mean, that's just like an unbelievable thing to fall into. Um, and so I had the security of that. Rick and Morty sold really well, um, which I think it would have sold no matter who was writing it. I say humbly, I think I helped, but it's so popular at the time. You know what I mean? I, no one was reading it. I can tell you from, from my experiences, no one ever came up to me and been like, I would do shows and people were like, oh, my son-in-law likes that. But no one was ever like, oh, I love issue you know, 17. Like No one said that to me. Um, but I took credit for it and I got, you know, I mean, people, <laughs> I got work because people were like, Rick and Morty sells really well. This guy's writing it. So listen, yeah. you know, in retrospect, again, it's good luck. Did, did I help it sell? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but I'm glad it sold well. And I'm, I hope those son-in-laws eventually read it, but probably not. I understand what you're saying about, um, about the thing being the thing. And that's, that's echoed very well. in, for example, uh, Lansing and Kelly's, uh, Star Trek book. Uh, coming out at the minute it's just fantastic the characters look the way they're supposed to look they act the way they're supposed to act um, also uh, our buddy David M. Boer's, uh Dungeons and Dragons Saturday Morning Adventures I don't know if you've had the, the pleasure of uh, of reading that I haven't read it great cartoon yeah exactly and that's that's um, that's it. that's what, what David is doing uh, with those four issues it feels like like an extended issue of extended episode of the cartoon, the characters look how they're supposed to look, act like they're supposed to act, yeah. but but grow a wee bit uh, over the course of uh, over the course of the story. Yeah, I think that's what you want from a license book. But again, I, I say that I don't know if that's always true, and, and I'm sure there are other examples besides Dorkin's Bill and Ted. But I know there are. I'm just blanking on them. But like Dorkin, like he he did the comic adaptations from the script. He never saw the movies, and then they're like, "You want to do more?" And he clearly just said yes. And it's not those movies, but it still has the same energy somehow. Yeah. Um, but it's an Evan Dorkin book. You know what I mean? And like, there's something about that too. Like, like Tinian Dracula oh. is, it feels like a Tinian Dracula, right? It's, it's clearly Dracula, but it still feels like Tinian in many ways. Um, so there's a way you do both. There's a way you do both. But for me and for Rick and Morty, and like I, why would it not just be the thing? I just, that's my, and even like, you know, when, when Marvel came to me the first time, they offered me Thanos. So do you want to do Thanos? for death notes and i was like who gives a shit about thanos frankly like i, I was like i was like what what i asked like people who i knew who tertiarily were familiar with with comics i was like hey what's thanos's powers and they're like he's big and like he's big i'm like yeah I, I read comics my entire life i have no idea like i don't know what thanos all i know is the infinity gauntlet and he loves death but my thing was if i can think of a good story that i feel like is thanos then then yeah i'll do it because and that's sort of my North Star for these big two things. Um, Peacemaker is an example. What, what am I going to make? More Peacemaker. Like, it was great. Why would I try to church it up? Like, Peacemaker was great. And they were like, what do you, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, more of that. Also, it's what... And, and, and again, I'm so lucky because Rick and Morty and Peacemaker are both so very much in my wheelhouse. You know, Rick and Morty is like, you take tropes, you play with them, you smash things together, and there's this sort of emotional undertone. That's what I do. Like, I'm doing action tropes with this emotional undertone. I'm doing big dummies with emotional undertones. They're spectacles, but kind of funny. So those are both, like, 
perfect for me because I like them. And I was watching Peacemaker and I was like, oh, I love this. And someone else pointed out that I should be doing it. I didn't even think about it. I'm just like, I like this show because it does all the things I like for a show to do. So then you do the thing. But even now, you know, with Harley Quinn, with Thanos, with Marvel, is me going not what is the Kyle Starks version of this, but what is the version that will the fans of that thing will love that I also like? You know what I mean? Yeah. That I also was like, I'm glad that exists. Like, I think I did the, I did the thing that should exist. Um, and that's a very fine line. Because I, get to do my, I can do my own thing whenever I want to, right? I can go tell whatever story I want to tell with my characters whenever I want to. So sort of be given someone else's plaything, I think there's a responsibility to it. Where if, like, I'm, if, you're, if I'm doing, not Star Wars, I would never, but uh, you know what I mean? Like, whatever, like, if I like it and I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that licensed property, whatever it is. Uh, Dead of Winter is a good, Dead of Winter is a board game I really liked a lot. And it's like, well, how do you do both? How do you tell a good story, but also... It's a good story, period. If no one knows what this is, will they still like it? But also, it's my—it's a thing that I think should exist that I think is fun. So I think that's important. License stuff's hard, man. It's really hard. Because also, you do it, and you finally come up with a thing, and they're like, oh, you can't use that character. You're like, why didn't you tell me? Well, you moved away from the license thing and back to create a room with Rock Candy Mountain, and, and that was a title my illustrious co-host sent my way. Uh, at that point, I was reading Six Sidekicks and Assassination, and then it was a case of, oh... He also wrote this. I mean, what were your influences for that book? It's it's a really unique book, Rock Candy Mountain. I can't really... You know the way when you read something, you go, it's like such and such meets such and such. I can't really do that, but it's yeah. really unique. And Jackson's such a great character. Thank you. Uh, so I did... I actually did Rock Candy Mountain while I was writing Rick and Morty, for sure. Because um, all my books had R and M in it, I think, for like two years. <laughs> um, but... I, I did 80s action movies, I did 90s action movies, and I sort of realized I was limiting myself, like, there's entire other worlds of sort of the action genre I had never consumed, um, so I started watching a lot of, like, Asian kung fu cinema, and I found, this is because I'm dumb, like, I'm just watching things people told me to watch, you know what I mean, like, what should I watch? That there's a whole genre, which I, I'm sure will mispronounce, it's called, like, Wuxia, it's W-X-I-A. And those movies, my takeaway was, as I watched like three or four, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is sort of famously the most yeah. recognized. Uh, okay. Um, that those movies sort of, because it, it's like, you know, everything else is like um, the hero's journey in the West. You know, it's the hero's journey, the hero's journey. And everything can even, even when it's not the hero's journey, it's still somehow the hero's journey. But this, Wuxia was always journey films. The character started point A, they had to go to point B, they fought the whole way there. And at some point, something like, completely magical happened and no one cared like there'd be a talking horse or something and you're like Dude, is no one weirded out by this horse <laughs> or they could run on top of trees and i i i remember just try being like well what is the american version of this and unrelated so there's some sort of guiding light you know that's happening is that i was researching hobos i have no idea why i don't recall why i just was um and i'd read like three or four really great books on hobos and i was really into hobos and i was like oh it, it, they go together like this is clearly i don't know which is the chicken or the egg but so it's me doing a wishy doing an american wishy film set post-world war ii with hobos um and you know i just i just did a book club someone did a book club someone ordered books from my store and i they ordered in december and i just didn't send them because i kind of closed my shop down and i felt so bad about it i went on this these nice people's book club in california i just i was like, I, I feel so bad about not shipping these books out at least i can do is come on your book club and talk about it so i reread it and I haven't read it in so long, and it's so dense because I'm such a cheap artist. Like, I'll draw, you know, 20 panels on a page, so it's so much denser. There's also more pages than we get to do now, but 
the thing for me is like, and I think if you look at those early books, probably up to Rocky Mountain, Sex Castle, Kill Them All, even Ricky Thunder, no one, I, I, I didn't, I was dancing in the dark. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I was just telling whatever I wanted to do. I was just doing whatever I wanted to do and not thinking about whether or not it landed or whether or not it was too much or because now like I would never, I would never ask an artist to draw as much as I drew for that. But already in my books, even the old head, I think has like eight panels a page. I would never ask a professional comic artist to draw that much because they're working for a living. They're already drawing a page. You know what I mean? So it's so much denser, but also like you can see, like there was no, there was no editor, there was no art. No one was saying don't do that or do do this, <laughs> and it's just it's just really a pure me telling a story um, without any. The only limitations were page count, so that's why there's more panels because I wasn't going to let page count decide how much story went into each issue. And I did a weird thing back then too, where like uh, it's eight issues, and every fourth issue was like forty eight pages, so it was like twenty. I say 24, maybe. I can't remember. So it's 24, 24, 20, like 48 twice. And I don't know. I don't remember. If it, I don't remember four cost more even. I don't think it did. So I don't know why I did that. At the time, it made sense. but And the book named after the uh, the classic uh, McClintock tune. Well, here that I mean, the two, no one, listen. First of all, we shouldn't say his name. He's very litigious. Okay. But it's not his song. It's not his song. It existed before him. Um, but you know what's funny about that is... Um, when I was working on it, people would be like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm doing this sort of hobo action movie, this hobo action thing, epic called, you know, Rock Candy Mountain, get it? And people would be like, I don't get it. And I'm like, you don't know that song? And they're like, and I'm like, how do you not know that song? Like, I thought everyone knew that song. It's one of my so in issues, it's so good. Uh, and it's, you know, Brother, oh, Brother, where I thought it was already out. Like, I thought surely everyone yeah. knew the song. No, a lot of people do not know that song. Um, and so in the first issue, the back matter was one of, one of me and Schweitzer's mutual friends is like a folk professor. And he wrote about the song, which was originally about child molestation. Um, as a lot of old American songs are, uh, <laughs> weird. Um, and so he wrote up about it cause I think, Oh, we should let people know what the song is so they get it. But it's also that guy is very litigious, which is why it's not called big rock candy mountain. It's only called rock candy mountain. Cause I was hoping yes. to avoid any searches. Um, and I've never heard from them and fingers crossed. I never do. Cause it's not, like he doesn't own it. That's not his song. He just like he has publishing rights for it. It's some really sketchy thing. Yeah. Um. I shouldn't say it. he'll get in trouble. Uh. But yeah. So so I, I mentioned this before, but we're doing a collected edition this year, which I'm very excited about because I love that book. It's one of my babies. I think it's my second best book behind Sex. I man, my, it changes so much. But Sex Castle means so much to me, and I think Rock Candy Mountain. They're both so well done. I wouldn't change anything. But it had all this great back matter that's just been gone if you didn't read the single issue. So that's going to be in the collected edition. Um, which I think comes out in June, which I'm I'm super excited about because here's the thing. That's one of my few regrets in my career is that it's two books because Sex Castle has sold steadily since it came out because people who like it will buy it, give it away, buy it again, and then give that one away. And because Rock Candy Mountain was two books, which is what they told me to do, I didn't know any better. I just did whatever Image told me to do. It just stopped after volume one. Like, it's a bad ending. There's no impetus to read volume two, and volume two is where all the good stuff happens. Uh, it's also $10 image trade, which I'm sure you guys remember when people just buy a $10 trade. Well, there's no reason to buy the next one. And I always thought that if it was one book, it would have been selling like Sex Castle the whole time. Because like, it's a one great story. It's a beginning, middle, and end. It's really rewarding, I think, as a reading experience. Um, and you want to share it with people. You, we always, that's comic people thing. is like, if something's good, and it's like, oh, here it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to be like, oh, you have to get... You know, they, like, even like back when, like, like, when you get, they jump around, you'd be like, oh... 
it's this story for like 95, 96, 97. And then there'd be like two fill in and you're like, Oh, and wait. So you're trying to tell people like, well, you've got to skip two issues and you got to come back for a hundred. So it's like, I think there's something about, and, and I'm, I've never been a TV guy. I mean, I like TV. I like TV, but I prefer a movie. I prefer just to get a whole story in one thing. And so I kind of write that way. So I think it's a more enjoyable thing to be like, Oh, here's the whole thing. Like you'll either like it or you won't, but here it is. And it's easy to share um, that Parker omnibus that just came out. Like, thank goodness. Right. Like, That'll be a dope thing that for people to share with people they want to get excited about comics because it's so well done. Another good example, by the way, of a licensed book that's just a licensed book, I think. Uh, done the, Whatever the license is, done really well. I don't, know, I don't remember what you asked me. I hope I answered it. Well, we're just <laughs> chuffed to hear that uh, Rock Candy Mountain has got a, a one-volume edition uh, coming out in the near future. I already own it, but I will be buying it again. Yeah, it's got all the back matter in it. We like that. The back matter is great. Yeah, it's timely that you mentioned your hobo research. I've actually been watching a lot of uh, YouTube uh, hobo camping and uh, equipment channels, that sort of thing. Where people are like, uh, where they're like uh, camping in bushes in the middle of towns and all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's super exactly, fascinating. Yeah. The way that, you know, I can talk at length about this, especially since I, I just reread it and so I, I, some of it came back to me. But like, you know, the idea, especially in America, like there's very little... Um, writing about the, sort of the hobo area, which for the most part we're going to say is World War One mm-hmm. to World War Two, though it was earlier than that, um, because like basically it was like no one wanted to acknowledge the homeless population. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of like whatever there was, it's like sort of these jokey things, and you know, in a, here we think about hobos being just like you got a can of beans and a bindle and you look like shit, and there's maybe a little dog that's got its head cocked at you, and it's like this jokey thing. But for the most part, those guys were vets yeah. coming home from war, you know, with PTSD. Who simply can't go work at the grocery store again and so they hit the road they they work jobs where they're offered them and it, you know it's the thing like where's the joke at you know what i mean where's the bit but it's interesting how this sort of traveling itinerant worker thing has evolved because that sort of went away yeah here but now you have like nomad people you have this very nomadic life and you still these people who are sort of like um you know finding their way of not being on the grid which i think is yeah. super interesting there's a lot of like people in like um I get a lot of videos of people in like uh, like Alaska who are just wandering around, like surviving Alaska. You're like, what is yeah, this? It's yeah. so insane. How do they charge their phone? I guess in some ways it was the original gig economy and the, the current climate of gig economy probably has uh, yeah. precipitated it. That's true. That's a good point. And I, I mean, I've read a wee bit about the uh, the hobo code and the, the lingo and such. I wish I wish there was a real collection of that stuff because you, you'll even, I mean, if you're researching, you'll see is like there's no consistency. Mm, yeah. Right. Like, the same symbol doesn't mean the same thing, and surely that's regional, but these people are traveling, so it's like, well, how do you know, like, what three circles means in Idaho versus, it's interesting because it was so poorly researched, and I think even the guys who are, who are involved, there's famous, the most famous, I'm doing air quotes, um, riding hobo, his name was A number one, he's the character in Emperor of the North, which is uh, an Ernest Borgnine movie, Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine movie, um, that's, uh, that movie is ostensibly about A number one and Jack London who wrote a bunch of great hobo stuff too, uh, in the road. And, um, but there's no, so if you read a, if you read a bunch of a number one, and then you read another hobo, they're the same stories, but they're slightly tweaked. They all just had the same experiences, which I thought was really interesting. Just here, they're stealing a pie here. They're stealing, you know, a sandwich. This guy's hat got taken, which was a big deal back then. Don't take someone's hat, but the code, the language, all that stuff was very fluid. It's like so it makes me feel like it's because there was so little journalism at the time. How accurate that is, I question. Um, but it's interesting. It's the idea of it is fascinating. 
I don't know if the information we have is necessarily correct. And you'd have to find like a hundred euro ex hobo at this point and be like, hope he is sharp enough to be like, well, no, it was this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like he's not. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a, a point of time. It's a specific era in American history. There's a romanticism about it, which is all encapsulated in the book. Thanks. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, no, we'll definitely look forward to that. As I say, Keith was kind enough to, to lend me Rock Candy Mountain. I have the trades in the store and the image section, but uh, I'm a lover of hardcover collections and back matter and all that stuff. Yeah. So very much be looking forward to that. I mean, speaking about hardcovers, I mean, you know, we've, we've touched on Peacemaker a little bit here with Peacemaker Tries Hard, hardcovers out first release week in February. Um, how did the book actually come about? Did you approach DC to pitch it or did they search you out and say, who do you want to work on? What was that process? So, that process? Yeah, so once again, it's just the dumbest, sort of luckiest thing. Um, I sort of mentioned it earlier, I, I watched a show, I liked it. A peer who is not in the comic industry, just it's sort of one of my Twitter friends, tweeted, hey DC, why isn't there a Peacemaker comic and why isn't Kyle Stark spanking it? And at that moment, I sort of went, oh, I could do that. Like, that's a book that I could do really well. It's 100% in my wheelhouse. It's exactly the type of story I like to tell. And so I retweeted it. I was like, I retweeted <laughs> And I said, call me, DC. Ha, ha, ha. And I think I literally wrote, ha, ha, ha. And someone called me. Uh, someone called me within like 30 minutes of that and, and asked me to pitch something. Um, that's not how it works, man. That's not how you get jobs. But that is how I got one job. And, you know, I, I sincerely believe that Steve and I, uh, Steve Pugh, who is the artist, I, I just, it's perfect casting for that book. And I say that humbly. I don't, I, I say humbly, I don't know who could have done a better peacemaker than me and Steve Pugh. For the first one. The next one, someone better than me will probably do it. But Steve does that. It looks like a superhero comic, but he gets humor. It's so well-paced. It's so well-done. He's such a pro. I mean, working with Steve was obviously Jordy, but, like, listen, like, there's there's a handful of colorists that are just, they're additive. Um, getting Jordy on that book was amazing. But, yeah, they just it's just good casting. And I, I say sincerely, I think that book's a classic. I think we made an all-time DC book. And I could be wrong, but I really feel like it's something that is always going to be good. And that captures what, not what comics should be. I think comics should be fun, which doesn't mean funny, but I think they should be like a romp. And I feel like that book is a fun romp that makes you feel something that's an enjoyable ride. And I think, I think it's timeless. Um, if I won't be, probably no one cares anymore, but I'm, I'm really proud of what means that you did. I think it's really, really a great book. Obviously editorial plays into that because it was black. This is another example of collaborating and editors because it was black label. They were much more lax than if it wasn't black label and so i got to do things and you know some of it's like they're like it doesn't matter it's not canonical right so and and i go okay so i can use snowflame i thought for sure they'd say no to use the cocaine powered supervillain like no go ahead um but yeah if it wasn't black label like would it have been different because there would have been so many more hands-on and telling me you know i can't use mal in the brain i can't use you know uh, demolition team whatever um but they didn't they're every time i asked them like hey can i use so-and-so they were like yes and I'm like, okay. And I'm like, can I kill? Can I kill these people? They're like, sure. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I kept thinking they were gonna say no, and they didn't. But yeah, Peacemaker, man, I'm real proud of Peacemaker. I just, like, when I list my books, it's like a new book comes along. I'm like, man, that book's really good too. <laughs> How high up on that? Objectively, is that on my list? I'm really proud of Peacemaker. Um, I just think it's a really good. I think it's a really great superhero book. Yep. 
Yeah, it was a perfect. And I hope moment. you guys agree with me. It was a perfect moment in time for it to come out because obviously the Peacemaker TV show was very adult. It was full of swearing, full of you know adult themes. I mean, one thing I will say to you is never watch the first episode of Peacemaker for the first time with your parents, which is what I did. Uh, I yeah. happened to be over and I went. I've heard good things about this show, and then it jumped into like a sex scene where she was trying yeah. to kill, and I was like, "What am I even doing here?" But uh, yeah, I thought you guys captured the tone absolutely perfectly. I mean. The biggest compliment I can give you is despite the fact I've owned a comic store for seven years, despite the fact I've been a fan for 25, 30 years, my brother has never been in the comics. And he came to me the other day and he said, you told me something about this Peacemaker book. Is is that collected soon? I said, oh, it's actually out in two weeks. He's like, keep me a copy. So that you yeah. have managed to bridge the gap to a non-reader because he loved the show and i said to him look this is like a lost season of the show it perfectly encaptures that tone so yeah as i say perfect valentine's day gift for uh, everybody coming up there so yeah great great yeah. stuff i'm hoping i'm hoping trade reaches a lot more people i, I don't know if the issues did I, they never tell you how much something read but you know with rick and morty people are so excited about seeing it and that's all because i think i i believe sincerely that if you can get comics into people's hands they're going to fall in love with it. I think there's something inside of the human being. Not, I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's one in ten. I don't know. I don't know how many people, if you hand them a comic, will go after they read it, go, oh, I really enjoyed this experience. But I think it's an actual part of the human condition. And so in something like this, where hopefully you, you hope DC goes, hey, there's a, basically a missing season of Peacemaker. There's more Peacemaker, if you like Peacemaker, that those people will check it out. Because I think that's a, that's a gateway into getting people to read comics. Yeah, yeah. And I think comics are so great. It's like, it's, it's all I want to do. So anything that will potentially bring in new readers, I'm all for. And something that's such a recognizable name outside of the store, um, I think it's hopefully good for that. So hopefully they're like, you know, it's a Target or whatever. It's, you know, box, they're putting it in box stores. Uh, I just want to see it at Target. That's kind of a selfish a selfish wish. Well, given, given, who's running, given who's running DC Studios now, I think you're you're well positioned for that to be the case. Yeah, you know, he sold all those books, but he didn't mention my book until it was over. It didn't do me <laughs> any favors. Hopefully he says something, hopefully he comes around in two weeks and says once again, and we'll sell out. One, I got two kids, guys. One thing I'm money. curious about with Peacemaker, and Keith and I talk about this quite a bit, I mean, obviously a lot of DC Black Label stuff is premium format size or what Keith likes to coin silly size. Is is that down mm -hmm. to the artist when it comes to black label? Because obviously ninety percent of the black label books are that large format, but things like the magazine size? Yeah, things like the White Knight universe isn't, you know, with Sean Murphy and Peacemaker yeah, is just yeah. regular size was do you do you get to make that decision yourself if it's gonna be black label? Or does Steve get to make I that don't, decision? I I sincere I sincerely have no idea what the answer to this is. I know people were asking me when I was doing that. They were also asking me if it was going to be hardcover, and I'm like, no one said anything to me. I have no, I have no idea. I don't know if they asked Steve, and he said he'd rather do this format, which makes sense to me. Um, but I think there's also the thing of, like I said, you want it to be, you want it to hopefully cross over some line between comic fans and the show fans, and to make it a weird size, I feel like would have been a mistake because it's 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 sort of excluding a group. You know what I mean? Um, you kind of have to want those those weird sizes, I think, as a reader. Um, though that's speculative. <laughs> There's a silent agreement. I, I think that's speculative on my part. But I think, like, I know, and I say that because I, I think for me, the people who most like those large format are creators. I think creators like it more um, than anyone else. But, you know, 
they look good and a lot of people like that matters a lot to me whatever gets in people's hands but they never asked me i also don't think they would because i was just writing it that's fair that's fair no it's more space honestly it's more space so i, I think there's always going to be i think there's always going to be standard comic size for me they uh, don't fit in my comic boxes that's the uh, that's the problem kyle yeah they're weird size you have to get you have to get a magazine a magazine size box which is going to throw off your shelf and there's a lot of variables i get it i have a magazine size box for my black labels <laughs> yeah plus the hardcovers look great on the shelf if nothing else um is there any desire on your part to return to the world of peacemaker or as you say as will it maybe be different creators take it from here or I, I, black labels weird i don't know if they have i don't they really like a one and done you know what i mean i I, I'm not, I don't know. I'll say this. No one has said anything to me. And I think that if they had real intent, they would, which makes me think it didn't sell as well, which makes me think it didn't sell as well as we were all hoping. But I do think the trade will. I think it's one of those books where it's going to be easier to move a trade than a single issue um, because it's such a recognizable product. You know what I mean? Especially if someone's at the store and they go, oh, Peacemaker comic. And someone goes, oh, yeah, it was really good. Then they go, oh. So we'll see once the trade comes out, if someone reaches, <laughs> if someone reaches out to me for a Peacemaker I don't even think about it. I don't. I don't do. I don't like to do what ifs. I don't like to. I'm not sitting around coming up with my Spider-Man story. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I to, for me to emotionally invest in something, and then it, I'm so lucky in my sort of personal pursuits. If I come and I'll, I'll say this, where monsters lie is a good example of this. If I come up with an idea, I'm really excited about, and I I I, I get asked for a pitch, and I go, oh, I really like this idea. I'm really into it, and they say no. I go, okay, well, I'll show it to the next guy. And they say no. Dark Horse was the last one. If Dark Horse didn't do Where Monsters Lie, I was just going to drop myself and do a Kickstarter or do an image. Then who cares? I, I'm lucky enough. I can always I can always make my thing come into fruition. But I can't do a Spider-Man. I can't. Like, I, there's only one way to do a Spider-Man. I don't want to do Spider-Man, guys. Don't make me do Spider-Man. But there's only one place you can do a Spider-Man story, right? So I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. If they came to me and said, do you... Do you think you could do another Peacemaker? I'd say, give me the weekend and let me think about it. And I'm hopefully going to have a lot of fun. And I come up with something that's worthy of it. Because that's a lot of it. It's such a good book. It, it, I think it'd be tough to do. The thing is, the, 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 the base of it, which is, like, it's really fun to be around these characters. You know what I mean? Makes it really easy to tell a story. But if the story doesn't sort of have all the parts in it that I want a Peacemaker story now in my head to have, and it's just me doing something to do it. And I don't want to do something just to do it. Um, but I really like that character. I think I really like that character. So I probably would. But they haven't said anything. It's Black Label. I know when I came to Black Label, and I think their mission statement has sort of... is like a moving target for them. But they told me that basically they wanted to make the killing joke over and over again. They wanted to make a timeless story for this one character. And obviously Batman has a bunch of them, but they wanted it. They were like, do we want Peacemaker's killing joke book, basically? <laughs> and so this is my version of that, right? This no no pressure at but, all. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. But, but you, I, the thing is, when they said that to me, it made perfect sense for what they wanted because there's a lot of like, well, how are we going to do this? Like, what do you want? And they're like, we want a self-enclosed story that will exist for this character timelessly. And I think we, I sincerely say, I think we did that. And I'm not saying that braggadociously. Like, I, I think it's really good. And Steve's so good. Like, Steve does such a great job. It looks like, anyway. I go on and leak. So I feel like we did it because I understood the, my mind. So if they're like, well, what did Killing Joke 2? I'd be like, I don't, that sounds terrible. You know what I mean? But I would do more, I would do more Peacemaker. I just think Black Label doesn't want to do that. That's not what yeah, they want yeah, yeah. is a series. They want standalone things. So, I mean, listen, I hope they offer me something else. Um, I mean, I'm doing other DC stuff that hasn't been announced, but not, not Black Label. Because 
it's the same. Like, what character would you like? Like, I'm, I'd like, I'd like the challenge of seeing if I could figure it out, and to not have the confines of of canon makes it it's so much easier to tell a story. But also, you know, I, I don't want to disrupt or upset that world and that fandom. You still want it to be something that you know. Again, now I don't want to do Superman, but you know, what I mean, if you do Superman book. That's a black label one-off. You still want it to be a really good Superman book, right? You don't want to just do a total good story that has Superman in it. So yeah, I hope they ask me to do something else, something stupid. Like I don't know, like something no one wants. I hope they ask, they let me do. We hope you enjoyed the first part of our uh, interview with uh, Kyle Starks, and we will be back with part two very, very soon. Thanks for sticking with us.